Today's reading is from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcisions by what is called the circumcisions, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. But you are fellow citizens in the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into... Can I pass to Joe? Thank you. Very good. Good morning, everyone. everyone. Lovely. Good to see you all. Um, good to be back. Thank you for the, allowing me to preach this morning and giving me the opportunity. It's a real honour. Uh, for those of you who might not know me and thinking, uh, my name's Joel and I was part of this church family for a long time and it is, really is a joy to be back. So, very good. Um, quick life, life update for those of you who might be wondering... Um, We've been well in Queensland. It's not quite been as sunny as we hoped. Uh, it's been lots of rain. It's been pretty weird and pretty devastating for people around us. But overall, we have been well. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've stepped up into a management role with Scripture Union. So I'm looking after a whole region of school chaplains and camps and stuff that happens there, which has um, been really cool. And Jo is doing very well. Uh, she's in the hospital system, still working. She couldn't be here this morning but I uh, wish she could send her love. And um, yeah, it's good to um, jump into this passage here. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, the second half this morning. Uh, I believe Andrew talked about the first half a couple of weeks ago. And um, I want to start by just sharing this picture with you um, of the temple, the temple in, Jew- in Jesus' day. It's a bit of an illustration. Hopefully, you can see a little bit, but I'll explain it uh, just to call this writing to here. Um, and some of the sort of language and stuff might help us get a bit of a picture as well. Um, yeah, so this is the temple in Jesus' day. It was destroyed probably in about 70 AD, which is probably a few years after this letter to the Ephesians was written. Um, and starting from sort of the outside in, for some things to note. Obviously, there's big walls on the outside. You walk into the city, you would see the temple. There's a couple gates that you enter by, 
And to enter through those gates, you would have a, some sort of cleansing ceremony or some sort of thing, ritual that you would go through as according to the law. Um, anyone could do that, and they would enter into the court of the Gentiles. That's sort of the outer courts there, um, you know, when Jesus sort of drives happened in these outer courts here. Um, so, once again, anyone can get there. Um, it's the court of the Gentiles. Gentile, a term for anyone not Jewish. Um, but then you can see this sort of inner structure in the middle. Once again, some more walls that separate sort of the outer courts from these inner courts. Um, the label's a little hard to read, but basically at the front of that inner structure is the women's court. So that's where anyone who is a woman, or actually probably that's where the Jewish woman would be allowed in. The next court in, it says the court of Israel. So that's where the Jewish men would go. That's where the altar is. That's where most of the religious practice would have happened. That's where the priests operated, the sacrifices take place. And then right at the back in the sort of bigger structure there is the holy place. That's in there is the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where God's presence was. We know that God is everywhere, but throughout the scriptures we see that God chose to uh, sort of manifest his presence, that in a particular place he was present there in a unique and special way. So that's the temple, and you can, we're going to talk more later about the dwelling place of God and his presence. But for now, I just want you to see like the different areas different divisions, that if you're uh, a Gentile, you can go this far. If you're a woman, you can go this far. If you're a man, you can go this far. If you're a priest, you can go this far. And of course, if you're the high priest, you can go all the way, but you can only do that once a year with a rope tied around your leg in case you stuff up and they drag you out. And it's like a system of order and structure. And before we sort of scoff and go, oh, that's so wrong, and that's like, this is a system that God put in place, right? It's how God set it up, knowing that he was holy and that people were sinful and that there needed to be a system of order and reverence for them to... But Paul writes here to the church in Ephesus, to Jew and Gentile, two people who have now come together who believe in Christ and there is ongoing division and hostility in this church. And Paul's now writing to them to remind them and to sort of tell them to remember what the cross is all about and what Jesus has done. I want to look at three quick points in this um, passage. We're going to look at the what. So what has Jesus done on the cross? How and why. Okay? What, how, why. And we're going to follow through sort of each of the verses and go through. So I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open, um, particularly because I think this whole passage, all of chapter 2, really flows together. And, uh, so first off in verse 11, we see that Paul here says... Therefore, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So Paul is addressing the Gentiles specifically, and he's reminding them that the circumcision, you know, this thing that, this is one of the signs that separates, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, the Jews are circumcised, the Gentiles are not circumcised, and that became a real decision is done. It's something done in the flesh by hands. And this is a work that we do, and he's just spent the last few verses talking about how we're saved by grace not by works, so that no one can boast. So these things in the flesh, like this is not what saves us. He goes on in verse 12, and he says, for the Gentiles specifically, to remember where you've come from. Remember that you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the promise, having no hope, 
without God. We're going to come back a bit later to the language of strangers and aliens, but for now, just know that Paul wanted his Gentile readers to remember what their lives were like BC, before Christ. Just like we saw at the start of Ephesians 2, in those first few verses where Paul writes that we are dead in sin and in our trespasses, that we're following the course of this world, that we're following the Prince of Power, that we're caught up with the sons of disobedience and carrying out the desires of the flesh, children of wrath. Paul wants us to remember once again what it's like for us to be without Christ. I just thought it would be good for us to take a moment to actually reflect on our own hearts this morning. And like, do you remember what your life was like before Christ? Some of you, that might be real easy to do. Maybe you've come to Christ recently and you can see the difference between your life now and your life then. And you've seen how God has transformed you and saved you. And like, that is an awesome story. And praise God for that. Some of us this morning, maybe. We've sort of grown up in church and we've been in the house forever and you, you can't quite distinguish between your life before Christ and your life now and you just have to use your imagination a little bit more to figure out what you're like. I'm sure it's not hard. There's plenty of examples around. We live in a society that is literally trying to define life without God. And I'm sure that we can, we can imagine what our life would be like without Christ, having no hope, being without God. And I think it's important that we actually remember and we know the gift of grace is so that we're humble in our own sin and brokenness and that we're grateful for what God has done. And you see this throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament time and time again. Even in the Old Testament, they were told to remember, to remember where you've come from, from the Israelites to remember coming from Egypt and being rescued from slavery. And now for us in the church to remember where it was done for us. So do you remember, do you know that reality of what it's like to be without Christ so that we can keep remembering how good his gracious gift is? Which is really what this whole chapter is about and which what Paul dives into in verse 13. This gracious saving work. You know, a couple weeks ago and we sang it this morning that Andrew talked about, but God, and here in verse 13 it's but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, You Gentiles who were once separated, alienated, distant from God, but now, through Christ, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that is good news, and that's really the big point of this. Who were distant, separated, alienated, have been brought in, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by our own works, not by your own faith, Not by your family history, not by your status or your gifting, but by the blood of Christ you have been brought near. And this morning we need to just hear those words again and have it sink in deep. That we who were once far off have been brought near. And for you this morning, maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel like, you know, I have been alienated. I have drifted away. I have gone a different way. And be reminded today that the blood of Christ, Jesus has died to bring you in, to bring you near. And Paul is writing this once again to the Gentiles. He's focusing in on the Gentiles. And he says to them that you've, you've been brought near. You've been brought in. 
not just saved from your sin, but you've been brought into this family of God, this long line of history that goes all throughout the scriptures. Paul is saying you've been brought into that. That was such good news for the Gentiles, and really it's good news for us that we read through the scriptures and we see the stories of all that God has done and go, we've been brought into that. What a wonderful family story that we have when we can read and see the faithfulness of God through generation to generation, all the way back, all across the world, that we are brought into this global family that goes back through all of history. And of course, it's messy. The church is far from perfect. The people of God are far from perfect. But by his grace, he's brought us into that so that we might know him. And just as Eunice read at the start, I had those same verses. It's what Peter writes, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter writing to the church, using terms used in Exodus for the Israelites. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. Like That's what God said about the Israelites in Exodus. Peter's now using for the church, saying, you all are those people a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, you were scattered, you were separated, you were all different, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if we're talking about the what of this passage... If we're talking about what Paul is trying to get across and what God is saying to us this morning, it's this, that those who are far off have been brought in. And that is good news. It's good news for you, it's good news for me, it's good news for all of us. So we've been brought into the family of God. And so we remember where we've come from. We remember how dead we were in our sin. We remember how we're separate from God and his family. But we know by grace we've been brought in. By the blood of Christ we've been brought near. And we celebrate that. Hopefully we have some joy in our hearts this morning because of that. But the beautiful thing that this passage really hammers in on is how this happens. And I'll give you a little hint. It's all done by Jesus. Have a look at verses 14 to 18. Have a look what Jesus does. It says, For he himself is our peace. And as we go through these verses, peace here is not sort of the peace of mind, that sort of calm inner sense that we talk about. Peace here is probably more of a relational peace. It's our peace. Uh, the Hebrew word sort of shalom, wholeness, that that is what Paul is getting on about here, that he is our peace. He makes us whole and together. Harmony is probably another way that we would talk about it. He has made us both, uh, Jew and Gentile, he's made both one. Jesus is the one who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. It's a bit unclear what Paul means here by dividing wall of hostility, but it could be that he's talking about the temple, those walls that separated, the, the hostility that was felt between those two, and down those walls. How did he do this? He does this by abolishing the law. He fulfilled the law and its commandments, and he brings in this new order and new kingdom. Why? So that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. He makes peace. 
continues that Jesus might reconcile both of us. There was hostility. He comes and preaches good news and peace to the Jew and Gentile. Through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile have access to the Spirit and the Father. Jesus does it all. When we're talking about the church, there's nothing here that you do to like make this all come together and work. Paul doesn't say he wants you to figure out the rest by yourself. No, it's Jesus dies and Jesus does all this to bring us together. He breaks down the walls. He is the one who reconciles us to God and he also then reconciles us to each other. The fullness of the gospel isn't just that you're saved for your sin, but that we're saved into this family. And it's not just that he saved you, but he saved us. And I think that's one of the key things we miss when we read the New Testament is that we read it very individually, that God has saved me. But more often than not, the language is plural and that God has saved us. Have a look through the first half of chapter 2 and you'll notice all the language is us. God lavished his love upon us. He raised us together with Christ. He has good works for us to do. It's about how God saves for himself a people. And very much that is the focus here. If the first half of chapter 2 focuses on the sort of vertical element of the cross, how we are reconciled to God, this half focuses on the horizontal, how through the cross we are reconciled to each other. The cross brings us together, it brings peace and reconciliation, it breaks down walls of hostility. That Jesus in his death brings two groups and he makes them one. How does that happen? Is that just some... You know, crazy thing that happens spiritually, or is it? Well, I think even just practically, the cross puts us all on the same level. We realize that we are all broken, we're all sinful, we all have a need for a savior, and the only suitable candidate is Jesus Christ, and He's the only one that saves our spirit, so that we can receive what we need to actually live together, to love one another well. Jesus becomes the only point of entry, the one way of salvation. It's not by our works, so no one can boast. There's no sort of hierarchy. There's no levels and different. We are all in the same boat together. Sinners, there should be no hostility. There should be no division because Jesus himself is the one who brings us together. He is the one that we unite under. There's no ethnic boundary lines. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. Through the cross, all of this is broken down. It becomes really simple of who's in and who's out. It's all through Jesus. Now, before you go, yeah, 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 I'm not like that. You know, I'm not one of those, you know, I love everyone. The church is great. I get along with everyone. Just think of in your own heart for a moment and go, like, who are the people that you might avoid on a Sunday morning? Or maybe who are the other churches that you would avoid? You know, there's the right ones and the wrong ones, you know? Or maybe who are the people that, you know, maybe you don't want to go do small group with? Like, I'll talk to them on Sunday, but I don't know if I can do small group with them. That's another level. Have we ourselves set up walls in our church, in our temple? Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Maybe in your, and I get it, the church is messy. 
Church is broken. And often we put up boundaries to protect ourselves because of what's happened in the past. And Jesus says, no, we're breaking that down. God has saved you, new, 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 new. God has saved all of us for a reason, to be his people, to be his holy temple, to do good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Think about that. That God has saved you and all of us here, many who are. God has saved us and he's prepared us to do good works. Here in this community, here in this church, Jesus died his death to forgive our sin, to heal our brokenness so that we could have that access to him. He gives his life so that his family can live together. What a special thought, eh? That Jesus dies on a cross. He gives his life so that his family could live together. There's a lot more to it, of course. But here in this passage, Jesus dies. He gives his life so that his family could live together. And if you look back in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that this is sort of the plan that God's been on the whole time. Ephesians 1 verse 10 uh, Yeah, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What was God's plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what God's up to in this world. That's why Jesus came to unite all things under the name of Christ. And where he starts is with the church. It says... We're going to start with this people, all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, races, everything. We're going to bring them together. I'm going to live with them and live through them so that they can go out and share the good news. More people can be united. More people can be brought in. And that is going to continue until Jesus comes back and puts an end to it all. His plan is to unite all things. He starts with the church. So I want to encourage you that you really get this this morning. That the cross is not just a ticket to heaven. That your salvation is not just something that gets you through the gates one day. But Jesus died, saved you as a means of adoption. Read through Paul's letters. Adoption is a key theme. And that you're adopted into his family. And you don't just get a heavenly father. You get some earthly brothers and sisters as well. And he intends for us to spend eternity together. And he desires that we start now. And so that brings us to verse 19 where we get the why. Why is God doing all this? And we've got a bit of a clue already. But here Paul really brings it home. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once again, Paul is probably addressing the Gentiles very clearly here. The people in the outside courts, the people who could only go so far, the ones who felt inferior because they didn't have this long line of history as the Jews. And he says, no, you've been brought in to the family. You're one of us. You have this history. You are a fellow citizen in the kingdom of God. 
these terms, strangers, aliens and citizens that Paul uses here, these are political terms of the day. Like they would have known exactly what Paul meant. Strangers were complete foreigners, those who had no rights and no protections. City and who had sort of a customary privileges and rights, you know, sort of maybe like a visa or something like that. Citizens, obviously people who had full protections and full rights, full responsibilities. And so just as Paul says to the Gentiles in Ephesus, he says to us here today that you are not on the outside. You are not second rate. You're not an alien with some, but you are a fellow citizen with us. You are a citizen of heaven, brought into the family of God with the full protections, the full rights, and also the full responsibilities that comes with that. You're a citizen of heaven. And he continues then in verse 20 and says, the building is secure. The church is solid ground because the foundation that has been set, the prophets and the apostles, they've spoken. We have their words here with us today. It becomes our foundation that holds us together, a truth that is secure, consistent, coherent. Truth of God's word is the authority that the church is then built on. And then Jesus Christ holds it all together. Jesus is the one that holds this whole thing together. Without him, none of it will work. And this is for me, you know, a practical note, but one I'm big on, is that means that community, church community, is not something we build. It's not going to be produced by, you know, stronger small group structures or, you know, great picnics or food. It's not going to just come together by having deep chats or sort of really vulnerable prayer times or things like that. Community is a byproduct of unity. And so we unite on Christ. We grow closer to him and we keep coming back to Jesus to be the center point of all of it. And we unite on him and as we unite on him, we will grow together. And I think it's a really important thing that we just remember that as we grow closer to God, we'll grow closer to each other. Often we try and do it the other way around. We go, if we, um, if we just grow closer together and we get comfortable with each other, then we will like get to go deeper in Christ. You know, once we feel sort of a little bit comfortable, we can talk about things a bit more openly. Like, I don't know, I often try and flip that. Let's just focus on Christ. Let's focus on him. Let's unite on him. He's the one that holds it together. We will disagree on lots of different things. We'll have lots of different issues. We will make mistakes. We'll hurt each other. It'll be messy. But we're going to keep coming back to the cross. We're going to keep coming back to Jesus because there forgiveness is found. There is love and joy and peace. He is the one who will hold us together and bring us together. And as we do that, we will grow. Now have a look at these last two verses as we start to wrap up. Because this is what the church is all about. That we can holy temple. Now, we know throughout other passages in the New Testament that Paul says, you are a holy temple. It's not something that we're going to become. But the emphasis in the language here is that there's sort of a movement to it. It's not just a static position that you are the temple of God's spirit and then you just... No, there's... Look at the language. It's ongoing. We are being joined together. It is ongoing language. This is something that God is continuing to do, that he is building his church. He is joining us together. He is working in us and through us. 
to grow us into a temple. The temple was where God's presence dwelt. That the Jews would go to a particular place to worship. And now God is saying that actually his presence dwells with a particular people, with us. That is an incredible shift throughout the scriptures. And you can follow that theme through. The Bible Project have a great video on temple if you want to check it out. Follows that theme through, that God's presence was once in a particular place and now is with a particular people through Jesus himself. And it's an ongoing process. We don't just meet together. We don't just gather together. We don't just sing and break bread together. We are being built for growth that is, just keeps happening in the life of the church. And this has to be our focus. It's just sad that often sport teams get this more than the church, that there is a process of growth that we're on together. Because our purpose is far greater. We're not being built together to be this safe bunker from the world We aren't being built together to create a beautiful display to the world. We aren't even being built together to be nice people who do nice things for the world. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God. A holy temple. A people set apart that they would know God's presence. That there would be a special element here where sort of heaven and earth meet. And being God's temple is not a guarantee of what will happen. Do you know that's what the trap the Israelites got into? They thought, well, God dwells here, so we can never be defeated. We can never, you know, we're safe and secure. And all. Like, God's presence is not a guarantee, but it is definitely a possibility of what can happen. That lives can be changed. People can be saved. There can be joy and peace. That God will do special things through his people because his spirit is here, because God dwells with us. A presence so holy and so special that it used to be contained to one person, one day a year, who had to go through all the rules and regulations to enter into God's presence. Now a presence that is here with us, where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I will be also. This is the work of God. It's a gift of grace. It's something he does in our power and it's something that he desires for us from now until eternity that we will dwell with him. You know, in Revelation 21, we get the picture of the end. We see what God has for us. And the Apostle John gets his vision and it says he sees a holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And he hears a loud voice from the throne. And it says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What we now know in part one day we'll know in full. We will dwell with God and God will dwell with his people. And that is a big reason of why we are saved. That Jesus died to bring us in, to bring us back. Those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
that through the cross, Jesus breaks down the walls of hostility. He says there will be no division in this church because I'm breaking it all down. I am the one who saves. I am the one who brings peace and reconciliation. I will bring these two groups together. And if he did that with Jew and Gentile, he can do that in all groups, in all churches, no matter what is going on. He will be the one who brings us together. And he does all that so that we might grow into this holy temple, that he would dwell with us now and forever. So would we know this morning that we're saved by grace? We're saved from our sin and we're saved into his family. And so let us grow together to be all that God desires us to be in this world. Let's not let divisions rise up, let's not walls stand, but instead let the peace and reconciliation that is shown to us in the cross, let that be our life. For Jesus himself is our peace and he has made us one. Great timing. Let's pray.